Welcome to Health Plus Tech, the show where we explore the law that applies at the intersection of healthcare and technology. Your hosts, Janice Suhida, Andrea Lina, and Jonathan Ishii, are healthcare attorneys and partners at McGuire Woods LLP, a law firm of 1,100 attorneys with offices throughout the United States and the world. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Health Plus Tech podcast. Uh, brought to you by the healthcare team at McGuire Woods. I am Janice Suhita, and I'm a partner in the healthcare department at uh, McGuire Woods, and I am one of the team leads in the digital health team as well. So I'm very excited today for today's podcast because I am joined by my esteemed colleagues at McGuire Woods in the healthcare department. And we're going to talk about digital health trends and issues for life sciences companies. We think that this is an area that has not been explored enough. And a lot of our clients are in the digital health and the life science space. And as trends and regulatory actions are evolving, so many issues are coming up and we get so many questions from our clients that we thought this would be a great opportunity for us to have an informal roundtable discussion, to highlight topics that will be of interest to our clients and to other folks that are in the digital and life science space. And hopefully we're gonna give you some great information today and some food for thought about how you may wanna prepare your company and your team for these issues in the coming year. So I'm going to take this opportunity to introduce my colleagues that are going to be joining us today. And my first colleague is Royce Dubinet, and he is an associate in the healthcare uh, department, and he specializes in FDA. And Kay Gruder, she's a counsel in our healthcare department, and she is in our Atlanta office. And I will have to say that Royce Dubinet is in our Chicago office, and I should have said that. So we are um, a national team. And as you can see, as I make the introductions, all of us are in different parts of the United States. And Cage recently joined McGuire Woods. She's a counsel in our Atlanta office, and she is also deals with FDA and life science companies. And last but not least, Kate Hardy is a partner in the healthcare group. She is in the Charlotte, North Carolina office. And Kate advises clients on FDA, uh, life science issues. And we are just so excited to have this really learned and um, excellent group to delve into these topics today. So I think the first thing that we're going to talk about is the FDA draft guidance on the electronic health record and medical claims data. And I think we thought it was really interesting because my practice in the digital health is I do a lot of HIPAA and privacy and security issues. And we thought this would be a great topic to kind of delve into this afternoon is because it not only has to do with with the FDA requirements, but it also has to do with a lot of overlapping HIPAA requirements and privacy um, and security regs that I think a lot of people wouldn't even know about or realize that they would have to be compliant with. What do you think, Kate? I completely agree. I think this guidance from FDA is awesome. And I think for, you know, 
pharma device and other industry, it's a great opportunity to have access to different types of data for your studies to support, um, you know, approvals that you're trying to get. I think it is important. Um, there's a, a lot. I feel like there's a lot in this guidance, um, but it's exciting and it's definitely helpful. But like you said, the first thing that came to my mind was, okay, wait a minute. There's a lot of HIPAA and other privacy things that folks need to be thinking about if you want to get access to this data. You can't just call up the hospital and say, okay, I want to get your claims data. I need this. Like, how are we going to do that? It's not a typical contract for data um, to get this information. Yep. And what caught my eye was um, it's just another mandate under the 21st Century Cures Act. And I think that would be a great topic for another roundtable for the group to talk about because I think just the chatter out there in the in the healthcare space is that the 21st Century Cures Act is, oh, I have to make sure that my EHR is interoperable and that my patients can get their electronic health records whenever they want. And obviously the 21st Century Cures Act is so much bigger, so nuanced and so complicated. It's kind of like an octopus and it just touches so many different areas of medical data, uh, medical devices, life science, all of that kind of good stuff that I think it's like drinking water from a fire hydrant for our clients, just trying to keep up with all of the, the compliance and issues that they need to be made aware of. Yeah, the other thing I thought of. Oh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. The other thing I thought about here <laughs> was like, you know, we work a lot in clinical trials in the clinical trial space. And, you know, if you're a sponsor and you're trying to get sites up and running, I think one of the hard criteria that you need to hold your sites to is, is a compliant electronic health record system and there needs to be reps in the contract related to that, that the system is compliant, is going to be in line with this guidance, and that <clears throat> there will not be issues with retrieving the data on your end. And I think on the flip side, if you're a site, I think most of the sites out there, you know, are going to be in providers' offices and have EHR, but, you know, as a site, you should be thinking about, well, what, what kinds of... Yeah agreements do I need to have in place with a sponsor that's going to be contracting me to get, you know, the raw EHR data. And I think the other like red herring in this guidance is like, yes, FDA can get this and look over it without having the same requirements of, as under HIPAA as someone else. But that is not a, you know, a, a free for all for the site or the sponsor to, to forget about their positions here. I think that's some really good insight. Kay, you do a lot of clinical trial work too. What do you think? Yeah. So one of the things I was also thinking about, like Royce mentioned, is the contracting when it comes to that side of, of research and how complicated it already is and how complicated that this will be to make sure that compliance is upheld on all all along the, the, the spectrum and the life cycle of the research. But I one thing I thought that was interesting is that in the guidance, they're already sort of hedging 
the use and saying that, you know, be aware that the selection of the data sources is important and have to be quote unquote appropriate to address the study question and mention some limitations like how comprehensive that data can be. And because it would be generally data that has been already collected um, and not in a research study according to a research design, there are limitations. But I think that it's it's great <laughs> in terms of being able to use the data at all because as we know, data is so incredibly valuable and this is something that can help solve major health problems and treat diseases. So. I'm curious to see where it goes, but yeah, I think contracting is something that I'm already thinking, oh my gosh, multi-site multi studies and managing this along with all the HIPAA requirements, it's going to be a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I also feel like if you're listening to this, if you're, like Roy said, if you're a hospital, if you're a physician practice, don't brush off this guidance because you're not the one that's submitting the data. You should really read and understand this and kind of know, especially since in here, um, the guidance talks about, you know, getting payment data and claims data and, you know, different types of insurance coverage that people may have. And I thought it was interesting that FDA kind of goes in and out of insurance coverage can change that might meet one thing you know what's the diagnosis why is why is the diagnosis on the claim so there's just so many different pieces of this um it's not something i think just for the sponsors to be thinking about it's definitely something the hospitals and everyone else should should try to understand especially since it's your data i think that's really good insight and it's not enough the days of when oh if i'm a covered entity or if I'm a business associate or, I mean, it's just so much more, it's so much more complicated now. And it's only going to get more nuanced for everybody as it goes forward. So, and I think that was brand new guidance in regards to the FDA. And another topic we want to talk about today in regards to FDA is their new resource for approved artificial intelligence and machine learning um, devices which as everyone knows, seems like every time you turn around, there's a new medical device, there's a new medical app, um, new, new digital health app that's coming on the market. And I think this new resource is a really good um, information site so that you can find out exactly which devices have been approved by the FDA. Have you used this yet, Royce? Um, I used a prior version. No, I haven't. I, I looked at it today. In the past, I used to have to dig around the databases and try to figure out if something was machine learning like and then advise clients on like, well, I found this thing after a, a, a lengthy search, but this is much better because it allows us to see what's out there. And I think the questions that always come up in this space are like, well, how much like is my device like another device? And I used a lot of likes there, but it's always <laughs> trying to find that line where the trigger point is with FDA on whether or not your product is just doing something, um, you know, basic, or if it's starting to like read x-rays and make diagnoses there. Um, and I think the other interesting thing that came out of this and we may be getting to it is 
Um, you know, we are about to get, you know, new guidance from FDA on like, what are good machine learning practices? Like, what is a, you know, a good machine learning practice, like a GMLP, that's a whole new area of exploration in the world of FDA. And it, it sounds, I mean, it is super advanced and I'm really, really excited to see what comes out of that. And if we get some guidelines that we can follow to, you know, have some fundamentals, like this is FDA's position on, you know, the base set of criteria and that you need to have in any, you know, algorithm or software that goes into that, that has an adaptive, you know, machine learning ability to it. So um, I don't think we'll expect those tomorrow, but sometime in the near future, we'll get better insight from FDA on what they mean by GMLPs. Yeah, and I, there's so many new and exciting developments in this space. I mean, in the, the diabetes world, um, you know, is one of them where everyone is working on artificial pancreas and all of the algorithms for glucose monitors to talk to an insulin pump so that, you know, your body is doing what your pancreas is supposed to do. And there's lots of examples. Um, I think for me, the big takeaway I have is especially now that there's so many things coming on the market or you can find when you just do a Google search, just because you see somebody else out there that maybe, you know, has a similar product, don't assume that that means you're in the same bucket or you don't have to do anything. We see so many people who miss the fact that they need a clearance. Um, You should really come back in this database is awesome to at least start checking here and then the other thing which is great and this is just you know right around the corner um fda is holding a a workshop to get input from stakeholders as well so it's an important time for anybody in this space to try to get in there and see what fda is thinking about but also have an opportunity to participate in providing information that's important Yeah, and I'll, I'll just echo that. I just think it's it's exciting to have another database going out of the FDA like this. Transparency and information is always a good thing. And coming from a trustworthy authority like the FDA, I think it's it's just better and better for patients to have access to this. And then, of course, the companies developing these devices as well. If someone like, and I know... You know, and our target audience for this roundtable is not necessarily the public, but what does it mean like if someone, it says it's a resource for the public. So someone that's a novice, what does it mean? And what is the difference between an approved and not approved medical device by the FDA? How does that affect someone? Um, I think that, you know, FDA oftentimes writes things geared towards industry, which are like rather specific about getting a device approved or, you know, resource for industry to figure something out. But I think there is general, you know, I think one of the things is people are genuinely interested in what's going on with them and how something is helping them live a better life. But one of the interesting things in this area is the development and the innovation is not going to necessarily come from the old guard of device and pharma. Like, 
the people that know how to code and work with software systems and machine learning and you know cloud-based applications are not going to be people necessarily that have you know 20 plus years of experience this is too too novel and innovative the people that are going to be entering into this area are probably already really good at designing ai or algorithmic you know uh, analysis and other parts like maybe going through you know uh, social media platforms looking for certain kind of content that same technology can be applied in the medical device context and the people that have those skills and know how to write those those programs are are probably going to be looking at all of this with a fresh set of eyes and may be coming at this as a brand new adventure for them to develop software that has a medical application. Um, I think that's gonna change the way FDA writes guidances too. Mm -hmm. Right, and uh, another thing here, Janice, and we just had this come up a little bit with another client, same thing, if you're developing some of these, you need to think about how they are going to be used in a hospital, <laughs> on a patient, and what patient information is going to be floating around um, on your device or what's going to be going through that machine learning because there again, you have the privacy considerations um, yep. that are also coming up. So you can't forget about those. Yep. And, and that was kind of my next question. I'm sure not only our clients, but the public and everyone's concerned. All right, all of my medical information that HIP is telling me has to be private is now on the cloud or in these apps, which Roy said are cutting edge in their development. Well, how is all of this going to be kept private? And perhaps people need to realize that more than likely HIPAA does apply. Years ago, people didn't, it's very easy to say, well, I'm just the developer. I'm not going to be using any of this uh, data. So I'm not a business associate or it doesn't apply to me. Well, it's much more yeah. complicated than that. The data is moving and you have to follow the flow of the data. Don't you think, Royce? Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing to keep in mind is like, you know, unlike what we're used to dealing with electronic health records and sending things around, yeah. these programs, the, the way machine learning works is it has to have a data harvest. Like it has to harvest the data and go through it. It needs the data in order to improve itself, to build. Like it, it has to capture, store, and retain examples of data, instances of data, in order for it to get better at predicting. So there's no way to do this without having, it's a very, it would likely be a very PHI heavy application. And the way machine learning grows is by having more inputs to it. So it's, right. it's, it's supercharging the amount of traffic and information that needs to go to a central place or a repository in order for the machine to learn. And it likely needs to stay there for a while in order for the machine to reference it and use it. And I think that that's, um, you know, is it de-identified? Is it going to be raw data? Those are all things that have to be thought about when developing the program. And I think unlike other areas of software, you know, or like, you know, maybe you're inv inventing a very cool app that can go through, you know, like, uh, and, and find, you know, the, the best uh, DJ mixes of Britney Spears songs. This <laughs> is exceptionally regulated industry. There are no, 
you know, like, oh, well, you know, we'll just, you know, we'll just live with the risk or deal with the risk. Sometimes in this space, living or dealing with the risk can, can mean uh, the end of the company's operations. Oh, big time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think we have heard from people before, it's like, well, that's not HIPAA compliance and the, the security, that's not tops on our list right now for this quarter or for this year. Well, like <laughs> yeah. Bruce just said, it better be on the top of your list because <laughs> if it's not, you're not going to be in business next year. I mean, yeah. and, and ransomware, and we could do a whole roundtable just on ransomware attacks and cloud security mm-hmm. and, and these devices and what happens if someone comes in and locks it down and, oh my God. Like a hundred percent. I mean, it's, it's also realizing that the central processing or the main base from which the device moving forward, if it's software, it's not going to necessarily reside on the, the patient facing product. It's going to reside um, elsewhere. The product is really just going to be you know, the future of computing is just having everything as terminals, whereas it's the server farm out in the middle of Nevada that's going to be doing the processing storage and, and holding of the data. And that's vulnerable to attack. It's mm-hmm. vulnerable to exploit. And, um, you know, if you're moving forward in this space, it's, it's definitely both an FDA and a data security, data privacy consideration. You can't just like solely focus on one aspect, like the way you used to when making medical devices. And well, I yeah. actually think, oh, go ahead, Janice. No, 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 go ahead. Go ahead, Kate, because then I'm going to follow up because it's a, it's a patient safety issue too. I'm going to talk about that in a second. Well, and I, I think that actually is a good transition into the, the next slide yep. that we have because we're, we're talking about all this. <laughs> and FDA, not that long ago, I guess it's been about a year, created the Digital Health Center for Excellence. And we, we put on this slide the strategic priorities that FDA is looking at. And if you go on the website, if you go to this place on FDA, there's much more information on the key areas that they're looking at, which is cybersecurity, software pre-certification, the machine learning and AI, which we talked about, mm-hmm. um, and wireless medical devices, which we can also talk about. But this is kind of like the whole big picture um, of all the things that go into thinking about your product, um, what you're trying to develop, et cetera. So there's a lot of different pieces to it. And go ahead, Janice. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. No, I mean, exactly. And that is a huge transition. But like Royce was saying, all right, all of these, um, all of the big data for all of these devices is in the cloud, but then it feeds to a medical device and it's a medical device like in a hospital or even on site in a patient's home that is keeping that patient alive. If there is a ransomware attack and they shut down mm-hmm. your server, that medical device is not gonna work. And then, so someone's life is in jeopardy very easily. And how do you get that back? So it's not only a business decision for you as a healthcare provider of, oh, I better be compliant with the feds. Yet October is Cybersecurity Awareness Month. It should be because you, if you're a healthcare provider, it's also making sure that your patients are safe too, as their lives are in the hands of these medical devices, which can be very, very vulnerable. Yeah, and, and I didn't realize that Cybersecurity Awareness Month was uh, October because <laughs> there, there are a lot of other awareness things in October as well. 
Um, but I did catch that when I was looking at FDA's website. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the one of the things I know there's a lot on this particular slide. Um, I and we've covered a little bit of it. I thought it might be helpful to just to talk for a minute on FDA's software pre-certification program, which again is another way FDA is trying to work with industry. I think to really work through all of the various pieces um, of the different types of apps and machine learning and everything else that's going on there. Um, we can talk about that in the wireless devices, but on this slide we put up, um, and I think this is a great thing for th people to think about, FDA has on its website who is involved in this pre-cert pilot program. And it's all the biggies, right? It's Apple, it's Fitbit, it's Johnson & Johnson, it's Samsung, um, Tidepool, which is one um, for those of us who do a lot in the diabetes space. They've they've been working on a lot of the algorithms that I was talking about um, for using your continuous glucose monitors and insulin pumps and trying to get them to talk. Um, but there's a there's a lot of people, and I, I do think, and I, I'm probably beating a, a little bit of a dead horse here. I mean, we talk to clients all the time who are like, "Oh, I'm going to develop this, and I'm going to develop that, and I've got this really amazing idea." Um, and it probably is, but you should have a stop and think moment um, yeah. and think about the cybersecurity. Do I need to, you know, look at the software pre-certification guidelines? What kind of machine learning do I have? Um, and then wireless to me is a little bit separate. We'll get into that, but there's there's a lot of a lot of different aspects. What have and you a lot guys, of different issues that can come up. Go ahead, sorry. Yeah, no, and that's good. And then as our FDA experts at McGuire Woods, what have you as a team seen in regards to wireless medical devices? What do clients have to be aware of, do you think? Well, on this one, um, the, the first thing that comes to mind for me on this is all of the wireless hearing aids that are out there. Oh, yeah. Um, which, yeah. which, again, there's there's a whole set of FDA regulations on hearing aids, so you, huh. a lot of people are forgetting about those. But um, anytime you have a wireless device that's talking to your phone or anything else, you've got your typical FDA-type things that you're thinking about, but because we're, we're wireless communication here, we're also into FCC space um, and compliance with all of those regulations. And I think because wireless to us is now just so commonplace, that's not something people think about immediately. Um, it is information on how FDA thinks about it is on the website at the Digital Health Center for Excellence. Um, but that's just one I, I wanted to flag because uh, we've definitely seen some clients who are, you know, further along in developing some of these devices and think they're ready to go. And then it's, you got to take a step back and say, well, you don't actually have the FCC piece covered. Um, or in the case of the um, hearing aid assisted devices, potentially there's other FDA regulations out there. The whole over-the-counter hearing aid device is a, is a separate FDA issue in and of itself, but 
um, the wireless piece comes up with that. Interesting. The, the other thing I see is a business model may start out where the device may be in some level of exemption because it's a general welfare device, but oftentimes, you know, this isn't like the old days of medical devices where you'd have to do a whole new product redesign and there'd be a physical component like adding more software or updating the user's experience on the product to do additional things, um, such as an interpretation of EKG data or pulse data or pulse ox data, those add more sophistications to the device and your business model and business plan should really consider the digital health and FDA aspects of adding additional features down the road as part of a roadmap for the product. Uh, it's it's an idea to get a product out there and functioning on maybe some form of a lower category of FDA regulation. But as you advance the product, you have you can't just roll out an update and have it do something. You really have to think about well, what are the, the the health privacy, what is the FDA compliance, and and what is the security aspects now that the device is doing something more complex. It mainly comes up in the wearable space. Yeah, I was just, Roy, yeah. you just made me think. I mean, I feel like there's so many things now that um, if you own an Apple Watch, you know, go That's with an Apple Watch. There's a, there's a product out there now that does have FDA clearance um, where you put your fingers on it, I think, and it, it's an EKG machine, um, you know, and it measures your heart rate. But all of these things, if you're yeah. thinking about developing them, you know, have a lot, like we said, have a lot of different aspects. And then at the end of the day, while you're thinking through all this FDA stuff, you also cannot forget about privacy <laughs> um, and what, what type of patient information, you know, is going in there. There's state privacy laws that apply. Uh, yeah. And where is that information going? Especially in California. And you need to think about, and we've talked about this with, with clients too, just because your business is not in California and just because you may not even be dealing with like your server in California, but if any of that data even kind of touches California or any other state with the privacy um, laws or requirements, then you need to be compliant with that. You don't have to be physically present. If your data flows in there, or if someone buys one of your devices and uses it in one of these states, you're going to have to be compliant with those state privacy rules. Well, and I think, Janice, if you're ready, I think that's a great transition to this last slide that we have. Um, so good. You think that we rehearsed this. <laughs> <laughs> um, the FTC rules yep. for health apps outside of HIPAA and you know we can talk through the key pieces here I mean the one thing that stands out a lot to me on this is if you go to the bottom of the slide the violations and the civil penalties per day oh are pre a day. pretty big yeah um and there's some real tight requirements but I, I can let you jump in if you want to kind of talk through some of the issues yeah. with this yeah, but yeah, and people need to be aware of that. And when we say per violation per day, per violation means per device. 
So like, you know, if you're violating this and you've got like tens of thousands of people, I mean, let's just hope that never happens. But this is a, this is a huge, huge issue. This FTC rule has been on the books for a long time. Um, they recently issued last month uh, an updated policy statement. And basically they said, we're going to start enforcing this. And they're yeah. going to start enforcing this. Why? Because of all of the issues that we have been talking about today. This, this huge um, nuanced evolution of big data and devices and health apps and wearables and things of that nature. So the government wants to be made aware that they understand that your personal health information, your data is out there on the cloud and in so many different areas. And they're gonna start cracking down that uh, developers and the way big data and digital health is getting more sophisticated that's going to be require you to become more sophisticated in your compliance of cybersecurity and privacy and making sure that you're following the rules. So even if it's not quote unquote HIPAA covered, if you're not a covered entity, if you're not a business associate, you're a hybrid entity under the FTC and you still are going to have to follow rules that are very similar to HIPAA if there is a breach. If any type of that data is unsecured, personal health record vendors, anything that's related, like a digital health entity, you're gonna have to report that uh, breach and you're gonna have to do it within 60 days. And you may have to uh, notify the media if it's more than 500 individuals are affected. And let me tell you, that's gonna be easy to reach I'll tell you, more than likely, you're not going to have a breach on a digital health with a wearable that's not going to have at least 500. So, yeah, this is this is just a huge, big red flag warning that they're telling you, we're going to start enforcing this, and you better get ready now. And that's what I'm telling my clients. What about you guys? And if, if you go on the FTC website, I think the most recent enforcement of this was with an app that was designed to track um, ovulation or something like that. I, oh, I forget. Yeah. I don't know the name of the company, but they just had a recent settlement. But to me, the thing that comes to mind where I've had some recent questions is physician practices, because there's so much in just the wellness space now, like, yeah. hey, I'm going to develop an exercise app for <laughs> my patients to use, or even all of these exercise apps that are out there, this right. is going to apply. And I'm sure that's not something that's top of mind. I mean, cause no. the first, nobody thinks that they're not in HIPAA, so they think right. they're fine. Right. Uh, the Fair other enough. interesting, yeah, <laughs> the other interesting thing I thought, um, the FTC, and we put a little clip up on here, they have this whole interactive tool now where it, it walks you through, are you developing a mobile health app? And it asks you all these questions, but if you can see on here, it incorporates HIPAA questions, it incorporates some FDA type questions. Nice. Um, it's an interesting thing to look at, but I think that's also, you know, we've seen this a lot in warning letters lately. All of these agencies are really coming together a little bit more yeah. and sharing information and enforcing um, in these different areas. Yep. I agree. Make compliance and your priority. 
Okay, I'm going to throw a question at you because you are the contracting guru. Um, <laughs> right? I think whatever, I mean, there's so many different things when you're drafting a contract that you don't just want to include HIPAA or privacy. Like, you, you really have to be thinking about all of these things um, when you're when you're doing a contract. Yes, so absolutely. And one of the thoughts I had when, when reading about this uh, was sort of how complicated it is and how I feel for the companies out there trying to navigate this stuff. But to your point about contracts, not so not only do you need to know what applies to you, um, in addition to what doesn't apply, if what doesn't apply is HIPAA, um, what all these various things mean with respect to your company and what it's doing and what it's collecting. But when it comes to your contracts, I'm just gonna say it, it's not gonna be good enough to say the parties both agree to comply with all applicable law, period, <laughs> and move on. And it's just shocking how often people think that that's acceptable, that it covers it. Um, so so naming, under one, understanding what exactly applies to you and not only you, but your vendors, because a lot of time you are the one responsible mm -hmm. yeah. um, and need to make sure those obligations flow through to the various parties and vendors that you're working with, uh, but to name it, to specifically name it in the contracts and maybe even up level with reps and warranties versus just sort of loosely stating the parties agree to comply with applicable law. Well, right, because perfect example, if you have a breach, the first thing that's going to happen is everybody's going to go like this, <laughs> you know, you're saying in, in, indemnities, you know, yep. we, we deal with indemnities. I mean, Janice, this is your wheelhouse a little bit more, but, you know, we're all accustomed to putting in different types of indemnities and who's going to pay for what in a business associate agreement. Right. I think this has to be blown out more into like most contracts now and you have to think about that like who's going to be responsible who's got to report to who when um because again the violations are big but all awesome points to to be thinking about yeah and then with indemnity most and then we also put in there hopefully everyone that's in this space working has cyber liability insurance coverage well then how does that come into play and another issue that we would want our clients to be made aware of is if there's a breach, you're gonna have an investigation, okay? And then who's gonna investigate when you're doing the finger pointing, everyone's gonna to wanna to do their own investigation. Okay, well then who's gonna be responsible for that? And, I, and then I tell clients, make sure that if you do an investigation, don't hire someone yourself or please don't let your insurance company hire someone to come in to do the investigation. Notify outside legal counsel immediately and let outside legal counsel uh, coordinate, hire the vendors, hire everyone that needs to be uh, involved with this so that you have privilege. Because if there's a breach, you are open to liability even with insurance and there's gonna be fun legal stuff down the road as well that you're gonna to wanna to be kept private. Lots of issues. <laughs> and Janice, you and I had this come up recently. Uh, if, if you have cyber insurance, there's requirements for complying. So right. you don't yeah. have the policies that 
you may not get covered anyway. So you can have this wonderful cyber insurance. And of course, we've seen it, right, with any insurer. Oh, but here's the reason why I don't have yeah. to pay. Exactly. Uh, so you do, you definitely want to be thinking about those things as well. Yep. The other kind of thought I have here is like, oftentimes these issues occur in very passionate moments for the company. And <laughs> sometimes a client's gut reaction is, well, I'm either going to sue a competitor, I'm going to sue a vendor, I'm going to sue X, I'm going to do X to get my vengeance, I'm going to you know, hire a private investigations team to track the hackers, or I'm going to work with my internal, you know, cyber fraud team. That's great. But you also have a HIPAA issue or data breach issue that needs to be handled because of the fines and the penalties associated with it and the potential, you know, harm to your reputation that can be done. Like that should probably be addressed in the immediacy before you go after, you know, on your revenge film trilogy, uh, not that that's not important, but this yeah. is the most important issue is remedying this, getting the breach sealed, being compliant and, and issuing the proper notices. The revenge uh, can happen in, in due time. This can't. Well, right, and there's all kinds of the fun plaintiff law plaintiff's lawyers now, the minute you have a breach, you can just expect to have some sort of lawsuit coming down the pike uh, to add on to everything else that potentially happens with this. So that's another factor. And this is also the area where you want a lawyer who's really trained and experienced in this area to handle it. And, mm -hmm. you know, this is... This is like, if this was a college course, this would be in the four or 500 level. Uh, it's <laughs> not, level. not for, you know, as much as we love our, our solo practitioners in the world, it's not for the lawyer that works in the strip mall, you know, uh, down the street that you've known forever. This, this, is, this, is, this is when you actually want to spend money. Right, 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 right. Don't, well, you better not call Saul, right? You better call us. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is not for Saul. Yeah. I want to just add a general, general reminder, too, with all these different privacy regulations coming out, companies from different directions and for different reasons. And this is a reminder to review your privacy policy because another shock that I run into over and over again is when I look at a company or a, a client or a target and I go to their website and I see their privacy policy was last updated in 2008. Yeah. And I know that <laughs> um, that's a clear indication that they, they probably haven't um, read CCPA or understand whether it applies to them or any really HIPAA or this uh, FTC breach notification rule or, or any of it. So friendly reminder uh, to review your privacy policies and your, your training and data security trainings for all your employees and this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Should be done at least annually. Excellent. Well, I agree. So we, I mean, we've covered a whole lot of different areas to have folks be thinking about today and none of it is meant to scare everybody off but hopefully meant to 
uh, <laughs> make you think and make you realize that it's better to ask these questions up front um, versus having to ask them later when there's a fire drill going on. That's right. Be proactive, not reactive. Yeah. So that's great. Yeah. All right. Makes things a lot easier. But, well, I think this has been a great roundtable today. I agree with Kate. We have covered a lot of ground. Um, I hope for our listeners today, it's been really helpful. You've gotten some good information, some things to think about. And as you're thinking about Cybersecurity Month in October, you know, think about how um, you can better prepare yourself and your business and how you don't want to be the one caught unprepared if there's a breach or if the FDA comes calling. So I want to thank my colleagues for joining me on our Health Plus Tech podcast today. It's been great. Um, I think this has been so informative that we'll do it again because there's always lots more issues to talk about. And um, please join us for more Health Plus Tech podcast recordings. You can listen to this uh, recording on the McGuire Woods website and you can listen to our previous um, podcast on your favorite podcast platform. We are on all of them. So you'll be able to listen whenever you want. So thank you everyone for joining us and join us for the next episode of Health Plus Tech. Thanks. Mm -hmm.